Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're getting back into our normal consecutive exposition this morning. And if you were with us a couple of Sundays ago, you'll remember that we pointed out from both the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of human experience and observation that the problem with ignorance and foolishness is that it can feel just like expertise and wisdom. So often, people who don't know something don't know what they don't know and are also the most likely to think that they do know. The social scientists refer to this as the Dunning-Kruger effect, and we looked at some of the examples, uh, things that have come out of that. But we pointed out that that these researchers, these social scientists, Dunning and Kruger, their observations and others who have replicated those findings, they don't really add anything to our knowledge or understanding of God's word uh, or the human heart. Uh, It only confirms what has already been taught plainly in the scriptures for thousands of years. The observations and the conclusions that these men reached in their in the 21st and 20th and 21st centuries, simply validate the truthfulness of Scripture, which has spoken plainly about the prideful and foolish deceptions of our hearts since the days of Solomon. So it really doesn't add anything to our understanding. It maybe gives it a name, maybe makes it a little bit more clear, but it definitely doesn't add anything to our understanding of the human heart. Proverbs 26 and verse 12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The person who thinks they're wise, they're not actually wise, they just are wise in their own estimation. Solomon says they're practically a lost cause. Or Proverbs 23, verse 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. In other words, those who know the least are the least likely to realize it. In Proverbs 1 and verse 22, Wisdom, personified, cries out and asks, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? Naive, simple-minded people, they love being simple-minded. Not because they love being simple-minded in and of itself, but because they think they're not simple-minded. That's what Solomon's getting at. He goes on to ask, the wisdom does, how long will scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and how long will fools hate knowledge? Again, why do scoffers scoff? They don't scoff for the sake of doing it. They scoff because they think they have everything figured out. Those who know the least, we said, are the least likely to realize it. And that's a stunning lack of self-awareness that's true of every one of our hearts in some way or in some form. When it comes to many different areas of practical knowledge, whether that be logic or grammar, politics, medicine, diplomacy, investing, uh, there's no shortage of ways in which we, we fail to have adequate knowledge. But we also lack self-awareness when it comes to spiritual truth more often than not. And the scriptures speak about that. Romans 1, Paul points out that those who have the weakest grasp of God's eternal power and his divine attributes, those whom he describes as futile in their speculations, whose hearts are darkened, he says they profess to be wise even though they are fools. Those who know the least about God are the least likely to realize it. Jesus 
channeling the prophet Isaiah, said of those who had no knowledge of God in Matthew 13, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. They thought they saw, but they were actually blind. They thought they were hearing, but they were actually spiritually deaf. Those who thought they had understanding were actually without understanding. They had the least knowledge of God, and they were the least likely to realize it. And that, on one level, is what was going on with Paul as he writes to the Corinthian church. There were many professing Christians in the Corinthian church who were immature and foolish, and yet they were the least likely to realize it. They were the least likely to realize it. They were, they were relying upon and fascinated with human wisdom and believing that they were experts in how God's kingdom was going to advance, how God's work was going to continue. And their spiritual immaturity was, being, was is in a sense, elevating all manner of superficial criteria, um, even to the point of fracturing and dividing the local church and they thought they were doing God's will. They thought they were doing God's will. And it had gotten so bad that Paul now has to swoop in in six chapters of correction in this letter to disarm a church that is at war with itself. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. This church that Paul had founded, this church that Paul had pastored for nearly 18 months, had lapsed into infantile status-seeking. They were pridefully elevating their personal preferences and their preferred personalities at the expense of effective gospel witness and the unity of the local church. And what Paul then carefully and, and candidly does in these opening chapters is show them that the cross of Jesus Christ, the message of him crucified, humbly proclaimed and accepted and clung to by faith, takes all worldly wisdom and idolatrous pride and strips it away. It strips it away. And so from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 5, Paul exposes that everything about our life in Christ, everything about our life in Christ is a contradiction to present boasting. Whether it's the message itself, or our calling, or even how the gospel is faithfully preached, from every possible angle, Paul is trying to show them, and he's trying to show us, that idolatrous preoccupation with tribal purity and worldly wisdom is nothing more than self-sufficiency, self-congratulation, and self-reliance dressed up in spiritual clothing. And he says, I'm here to tell you, you don't know what you don't know. God saves through the foolishness of the message preached. Verse 25 of chapter 1 says, He does this because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He saves, verse 29, so that no man, in such a way as to no man may boast before God. 
God saved you and he saved me through simple childlike faith in the word of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 5 of chapter 2 says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so he has been trying to expose how our lives in Christ, to say that they are a contradiction to present boasting is an understatement. He pivots then in verse 6 through verse 16 of chapter 2, which is what we've been looking at the last message and what we'll finish up this morning, to point out that the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that that is in fact wisdom. Because there might be some critics who respond to his correction in these opening chapters and say, well, why are you so against wisdom, Paul? And he's saying, I'm not against wisdom. My preaching and the gospel, the message of the cross, is in fact wisdom, just not the kind of wisdom you're pursuing. And so he says in verse 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered in the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. And so Paul reaffirms in verses 6 to 10, which is what we looked at last time, that the gospel that we trust in, the gospel that we proclaim and that we herald, is in fact wisdom. It is God's wisdom. It is God's wisdom. And we saw how, um, how he explains that by just putting some headings to each of the few verses that we looked at. We saw the domain of God's wisdom. We saw the disclosure of God's wisdom. We saw the sovereign power of God's wisdom, right? He revealed it to us, predestined before the ages. We saw the grandeur of it in verse 8 and 9. And lastly, we ended our message last time by understanding the key to God's wisdom, to knowing it and understanding it. And the key is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. For God to us has revealed them through the Spirit. What? The things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and all that God has prepared for those who love him. God's wisdom can only be heard and understood and embraced by those with spiritual hearing, spiritual ears. It's not the learned philosophers. It's not the, the worldly powerful. It's not the charismatic movers and shakers. It's the humble sinner whom God chooses to reveal his truth. And the fact that Paul says that God's wisdom is revealed in verse 10 wipes away any kind of boasting, any kind of superiority on our part. There's no place for pride. There's no, there's no space given for boasting or any kind of self-sufficiency because it's all of him. It's all his doing. So verses 6 to 10, in a sense, reveal the what of God's wisdom. The what of God's wisdom. But as we come to the back half of this section in verses 10 to 16 this morning, Paul is going to reveal to us the how of God's wisdom. So verses 6 to 10 are more about the what. It's kind of a disclosure 
of what God's wisdom is and, and sort of the source of it. Now he's going to bring us to the how. How does God's wisdom do this work? How does the Holy Spirit unlock God's wisdom? And how does the Holy Spirit reveal God's truth to our ignorant, foolish, and deceptive hearts? And then by implication, what, what are the consequences of that work? That's what the text is going to answer for us this morning, and that's what we hope to accomplish in our study of God's Word. And so um, you can kind of put everything under four headings in this section, maybe four um, different individuals, if we were to look at this from verses 10 to verse 16, um, you know, the, we see the apostle Paul in verses 10 and 11. We see the Corinthians come into view. We, the Holy Spirit comes in view. And lastly, the hearers, the readers, both of the letter itself, the Corinthians, but us as well and all who else would hear this word. And so that's kind of the four headings that we're going to use in our outline this morning. So in verses 10 and 11, uh, we'll call the first kind of person steps into the front of the stage here, and that is the Apostle Paul. And we see the Apostle's analogy, the Apostle's analogy in verses 10 and 11. He says, for us, to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So the first part of verse 10, like we said last time, makes clear that the key that decrypts, if you will, the God's wisdom that's hidden from our understanding, it's not a password, it's a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit decrypts God's wisdom that is hidden from the natural man's understanding. God's wisdom to save rebellious sinners is, was, as we saw in the previous section, hidden with God in a mystery, but has now been revealed. It was God predestined it before the ages, so it's been with God for all eternity. God's wisdom is to shower us with, as us as his adopted children, with things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and, and our minds have not conceptualized, that wisdom is graciously, mercifully opened up to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Your understanding, my understanding, and embrace of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is not the result of human intuition. It is not the result of intellectual inquiry or even random chance. It is a divine work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's truth to your heart and to make it known. To make it known. And not just to make it known like here, but to make it beautiful and trustworthy and glorious to your heart. And that's why he goes on to explain, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now, he already told us in verse 9 that, that God's ways are beyond our finding out. We can't figure them out on our own. It, it, it escapes our natural reasoning uh, reason doesn't get you to God. Intuition will never get you to the gospel. But he says here, the Holy Spirit searches all things. 
The Holy Spirit searches all things. The Holy Spirit is able to make careful, thorough examination and investigation to learn everything. That's what it means to search. He, he, he's able, the Spirit is able to make careful, thorough examination and investigation to learn everything. In other words, he knows it all. He knows it all. He's like Google. Right? He knows it all. You know how Google's crawlers, they just compile more and more information about everything and everyone, and it connects all the dots? Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does, but in a good way, not in a creepy way. He has it with perfect knowledge. How can that be? How is it that the Holy Spirit can search out all things? It's not just that the Holy Spirit searches out and knows everything about every human heart. He says he knows the depths of God. The Spirit has made a careful, thorough examination and investigation to learn what's so far beyond our reach about God that only God can know it. How's that possible? Well, when you look elsewhere in the New Testament, we see this is because this is part and parcel to who God is. Romans 8 verse 27 refers to the Father as he who searches the hearts. Revelation 2 verse 23, God the Son speaking, refers to himself as he who searches the minds and hearts, rewarding each according to their deeds. And here in this text in verse 10, God the Holy Spirit is he who searches out all things, including the human heart and even the depths of God. Paul is saying plainly, unmistakably, that the Holy Spirit is God. He's God. He knows all things and he knows them perfectly because he is God. He knows the depths of God. This is a powerful scriptural evidence for the deity of the Holy Spirit. And that's not even Paul's main point. <laughs> It just goes to show that it's not just a chapter and verse that helps us understand theology, but it's taking all the pieces and filling them together and it paints a picture. And then we, the meaning of the text and the implications of the text are part of our theology. The Apostle Paul here makes a powerful argument for the deity of the Holy Spirit. He knows the depths of God. And so then he goes on in verse 11 to give an analogy to help us reinforce, uh, to reinforce and to help us understand, better understand, the Spirit's role in revealing God's wisdom. Now, an analogy, for most of us, we know what that is, but just to clarify, it's, it's a way of comparing two things to show how they're similar. Analogy is a way of comparing two things to show how they are similar. Um, E.B. White, give you an example. Famous children's author, wrote Charlotte's Web, a few other books that kids probably might be familiar with. He said this, explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it better, but the frog dies in the process. That's an analogy. That's an analogy. He compares explaining a joke, something we may not, well, some of us have had to do more than we want, to cutting open and carefully examining a frog, something most of us, if we've gone through school, have done at some point. He shows how they're similar. They both destroy the thing pulled apart in different ways. So analogies are a helpful way of teaching, a helpful way of learning. 
We do this all the time. We, we don't even realize how we use analogies to conceptualize things we're not familiar with by tying them together with things that we are familiar with. And that's what Paul's doing here in verses, the end of verse 10 and verse 11. He wants us to better understand how the Holy Spirit reveals God's wisdom to our hearts. So he uses an analogy to clarify and to explain. He says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? The obvious answer is nobody. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. So the analogy is is pretty straightforward. Paul's saying, just as you're the only person who perfectly knows what's going on in your own mind, in the same way, only God perfectly knows what's going on in God's mind. So practically speaking, only I know what I'm thinking unless I choose to tell you with my words. In the same way, only God knows what God's thinking unless God chooses to reveal his thoughts to others through his word. See, we don't possess, you and I, as creatures, as human beings, do not possess in ourselves any capacity to truly know God or God's wisdom unless he graciously chooses to reveal himself to us. Only God can know God. So, the Holy Spirit becomes the necessary connection between God and our hearts. God the Holy Spirit himself is the one and the only one who makes our knowledge of God's wisdom possible. As one commentator said, the Spirit knows God from the inside. And because the Spirit who reveals is truly God, what he reveals is the truth of God. So again, Paul is taking us sort of behind the curtain to show us how all boasting and arrogance and self-congratulation are out of bounds. You and I would look at the cross and the gospel and God's truth as nothing but foolishness and his infinite power and strength would appear to us as nothing but weakness if it were not for the Holy Spirit taking God's wisdom and disclosing it to our hearts and minds. We would not There's no way we would understand it. And that's exactly what he has done, which leads us into our second point. In verse 10 and 11, we saw the apostles' analogy. In verse 12, really the beginning part of verse 12, we see the Corinthians' affirmation. The Corinthians' affirmation. He says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So, uh, all throughout this section, not even in this section, but into the previous section back in chapter 1, verse 18, and throughout, he has been contrasting those who are perishing with those who are being saved. Those who are perishing view the cross as foolishness, God's power as contemptible weakness, and human wisdom as superior. On the other hand, those who are being saved view the cross as God's wisdom, God's weakness, such as it is, as ultimate strength and human wisdom for what it really is, transitory and destined for the trash heap. The difference between these two groups, the only difference between these two groups is the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. That's it. 
The Spirit, who alone knows God's thoughts, becomes the link, the bridge to our embracing God's truth. Paul was constantly reminding the Corinthians that they were the recipients of God's gracious work. Over and again, he does the same thing here. He says, we, we, this is an editorial we. You and I have received the Spirit who is from God, not the Spirit of this world. He's reminding them, you are not citizens of this earthly world. You belong to a different world order. You are not, he says, drifting along, being blown around by the prevailing winds of this present age. He says, we have received the spirit who is from God. So live like it. Live like it. Stop living like you were not transferred from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Because you were. Paul says, Galatians 3, 2 to 3, when the Galatian churches were drifting back into self-righteous legalism, he says, somewhat sarcastically and rhetorically, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The obvious answer is by hearing through faith. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being sanctified, perfected, completed by the flesh? His point is you've received the Holy Spirit. He's disclosed God's wisdom to your hearts. He's made you alive together with Christ. He has affixed his eternal seal on you. He has made you a new creature in Christ. Are you going to go back to what you were li- the way you were living before by that old standard from which the Spirit rescued you? Like a dog returning to its vomit Are you going to be the fool going back to your folly? The obvious answer is, of course not. Of course not. We've received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. You know, sometimes, like the Corinthians, we need to be reminded of that. We need to be affirmed into who we are. Romans 8, 9 and 10. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But that's not really his point. He's saying, verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. You're a new creature. And the implication then is Romans 8, verse 12. Brethren, we're not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You don't owe the old man anything anymore, the old woman. That's not who you are. Don't live like it. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He says, you used to be arrogant. You used to be contentious. You used to be partisan. You used to be divisive. That's the old man, the old woman. He says, you don't have to be like that anymore. You can be humble and you can be reasonable and you can be just in your dealings with all men and you can be, you can be a peacemaker. The Holy Spirit has is, is taken up residence in your hearts. He's made God th- God's thoughts, his will, his wisdom 
which was previously inaccessible, he's made it readily known. Which leads into our third point. In the latter part of verse 12 and verse 13, Paul reveals the how of God's wisdom. He reveals it in what we'll call the Spirit's activity. The Spirit's activity. So we've seen the Apostles' analogy, the Corinthians' affirmation. Thirdly, the Spirit's activity. From the end of verse 12 into verse 13, Paul drills down to explain how the Spirit's work manifests itself in every heart. Why have we received the Holy Spirit? Why must we receive the Holy Spirit to place our faith in Jesus and understand God's wisdom? Verse 12, so that, the end of verse 12, we may know the things freely given to us by God. You have to have the Spirit because he's the only one that makes it possible for you and I to know the things freely given to us by God. The Spirit's most vital ministry, one of his most vital ministries, is making known God's truth to our rebellious hearts. He says, God the Holy Spirit makes those truths known to us. He says, that's exactly what my apostolic preaching is and has relied upon from the beginning, verse 13. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. He says, the message I preach is given in words taught by the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm explaining, the the end of verse 13 is, is like a thousand different translations of that. It really falls down to two things. Do you think the spiritual thoughts and spiritual words is referring to what he's talking about in the preceding verses or is he alluding to the spiritual person in the former verses? I believe the weight of evidence argues for the, the previous section. He's saying, I explain spiritual truths with spiritual words. With spiritual words. I explain, I clarify, that's the idea behind combine there or interpret. I combine spiritual things, spiritual truths with spiritual words. The Holy Spirit is the key to all of it. Like we said earlier, he is the key to faithful preaching. We saw that back in verses 4 to 5. He's the key to our conversion, verse 12. And he's very much the key to our understanding and embracing God's word as true wisdom. So the theologians refer to this as the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. Illumination. See, so many people think the Holy Spirit's work is one of stirring up emotion or catapulting the person into some kind of ecstatic experience. And Paul says, "That's, that's that's not of God at all. The Holy Spirit's ministry is one of teaching God's truth to our minds and hearts. The Holy Spirit's at work when people's minds, their understanding, and their glory is in God's truth, and they see it for what it really is. It's why Paul commended the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He says, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 
See, that's when the Holy Spirit's at work. That is when the Holy Spirit's at work. Look with me at John 16 for just a moment. John chapter 16. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he's giving them all kinds of instruction here as he wraps up his time on on earth before going to the cross. And in chapter, John chapter 16, in verse, pick it up in verse 13, he says, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He, the Spirit, will glorify me. He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine. The Spirit takes of Jesus and will disclose it to you. He says, a little while, verse 16, you will no longer see me, but again in a little while you will see me. Notice the Holy Spirit's work is not to draw attention to himself. What does he do? He draws attention to Jesus. He glorifies the Son. And how does he do that? By guiding us into all the truth and by disclosing God's truth to each of our hearts. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. John 14, back up a couple chapters in verse 26. But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to recall and to help us understand Jesus preaching and teaching his words. And again, later, much later in ministry, the Apostle John in chapter, 1 John 2 and verse 27 says... As for you, the anointing which you received from him, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you remain or abide in him. And again, he's not saying that we don't need teachers, but he's saying we don't need something outside of God, the Holy Spirit, to understand God's word to make it under, plain and, and understand it and embrace it. So if you're understanding God's truth and, his, and you're trusting in it and you're delighting in God's word this morning, you have to understand that's the spirit of God's work. Like, that's all him. You, you and I would never be able to do that apart from his work. We would, we would be lost, which leads us to our fourth and final point. We'll call it the hearer's appraisal. The hearer's appraisal. Coming back yet again, Paul does here in verses 14, 15, and 16, he comes back to this contrast between those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And Paul pivots in verse 14 to point out that those who are perishing reject God's wisdom in his word. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
says, the natural man stands in stark contrast to we who have the Spirit of God. Totally different. And again, all throughout this section, he's contrasting the natural man, the unbeliever, and the believer. Not, not you know, immature Christian, super mature Christian. This is those who are perishing, those who are being saved. The verb here in verse 12, um, excuse me, verse 14, where he says accept, does not accept, has the idea of receiving another person. It's not just that the natural man or natural woman is incapable of understanding the things of the Spirit. He says they actively reject the things of the Spirit. Their foolishness to them. Ridiculous. Crucified Savior? Salvation by faith? Resurrection from the grave? That's nonsense. Remember a number of years ago when my parents were first saved as young people, they were explaining the gospel to another family member who didn't know Christ. And when they got all done kind of explaining the nuts and bolts of the gospel, the person, this family member, looked at them and said, so if God forgives all your sin, past, present, and future, when you trust in him, why would anybody obey him? After that, just did just seem ridiculous to her. Why? Because he cannot understand them. They are spiritually appraised. They are spiritually appraised. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned or sifted or evaluated. Without the Holy Spirit, there is not a soul on this planet that has the ability to make an accurate or determinative evaluation of spiritual things. They're like a deaf man trying to judge a symphony or a blind man trying to tell you about a painting. They do not understand it. On the flip side, the spiritual man is the one who possesses the Holy Spirit, verse 15. The Spirit takes up residence in his heart. That man is able to discern all things. He has no disadvantage. Verse 15, he who is spiritual appraises all things, and yet he himself is appraised by no one. See, the Spirit, it's the Spirit who searches all things, even the depths of God. So guess what? If you have the Holy Spirit within you, and if you're a Christian, you do, because he comes and takes up residence in your heart at the moment of conversion, you can discern God's ways. You can understand God's ways. Now, when he says all things, he doesn't mean that Christians, when we get saved, we know everything about everything. No one, you know, and no one can ever confront or correct. That's not what he's saying, even though some on social media would like to believe that. It's not true. He means the, spirit, the spiritual man is able to examine all things that pertain to God's wisdom, God's truth. Remember, all is guarded by the context here. He is able to examine all things that pertain to God's truth, the things God's revealed through his word, and accurately understand them and evaluate them. Those without God's spirit are not in a position to judge God's word or God's witnesses as foolish. You know, culturally, 
unbelievers look at what the scripture teaches about a host of issues, gender, marriage, sexuality, race, fill in the blank, and they'll say, well, that's, that's foolish, that's stupid, that's backwards, that's harmful. Well, they don't get to make a final judgment. That's what Paul's saying here. They don't stand in final judgment over God's word. That's why he says in verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord that he's instructing God? Who, who without the Holy Spirit can stand up and match wits with God? No one. The obvious answer is no one. No one can say, I know better than God. Move over, God. Let me show you how you thought, ought to think about this. Think about that. When he's clearly spelled it out in his word. No one can say that they know better than God his design for marriage, his design for men's and women's roles, God's design for church leadership, God's design for fill in the blank. They don't get to make that call. Look with me at Job. At the end of Job, after all the just chitter-chatter between Job's friends and Job, God finally speaks in the text in verse 4. And I, I mean, this is, this is essentially what Paul's getting at. Job 38 and verse 4. God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you apparently know? Who stretched the line on it? Or where its base is sunk, or on its where its base is sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth? It went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and a thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set the bolts and doors and said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. He says, where were you when I set the boundaries of the oceans? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Tell me, when were you in charge of when the sunrise was supposed to happen? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the sea, and they stand forth like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you ever entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Or have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? And he just goes on and on and on. The obvious answer is you are nowhere to be found there. You are, you are nothing. You are God. We are your creatures. And Job says at the end, I'm undone. I'm undone. The rebellious sinner can't possibly understand holiness. But the holy person can very well understand the depths of evil. Why? Because we're so smart, such hard workers, we're so in tune with our own hearts? No. You and I are only able to discern anything because it has been graciously revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. Through the word which he's authored. 
then and only then are we able to apply those truths to all of life's situations. So as Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have everything you need, but he's done it through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. The operative verbs in that in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 are granted and called. That's not your doing, that's God's doing. And Paul says it a little more succinctly in Romans, I mean, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, he says, We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, Christian. And with that, in verse 16, Paul brings his argument essentially full circle. As those who claim to possess the Holy Spirit, the Corinthians ought to have the same mind. They should have the mind of Christ. But as he's going to point out here as we get into chapter 3, their behavior tells a very different story. Their behavior toward one another in the church reveals a very different mindset. They claim to be walking in wisdom, but the harvest of that wisdom was the bitter fruit of endless quarrels over superficial things and a tearing down of the very church for which Christ died. Hardly wisdom at all. This is a timely word for our churches, for us. The Spirit's work in every heart doesn't lead. It ought not to lead to status-seeking and a contentious spirit on every matter of personal preference or preferred personality. It just shouldn't. Because we know what God is about in Christ. And we are living out the life of the future now in the present, which is passing away. Our lives are indelibly marked out by self-denial daily as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. And we are people of the Holy Spirit who stand in bold contrast to those who are merely human and do not understand the good news of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I trust this morning that you are in Christ, that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart. As chapter 12 will tell us as we get into the latter part of this letter, that you've been baptized into the body of Christ through faith in Jesus. If you haven't done that this morning, now is the time. Turn away from all that dishonors him. Recognize that you cannot save yourself. Anything that you know, anything that you think you can do apart from God, just recognize there's nothing you can do apart from him. And if you will be saved from the wrath to come, you will have to hide in the Lord Jesus. Because in him, and only in him, is salvation. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Trust him. Turn to him. Throw yourself upon his mercy and know that he will in no wise cast you out.
And let us who have been born again live as those who are of the Spirit, having the same mind, having the same judgment, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning to acknowledge that uh, so often our hearts are drawn into controversy, or drawn into divisiveness, drawn into partisanship, and it's so much easier to make war with others than to live in peace and grace and kindness toward one another in the church and even outside the church. But the Spirit calls us to a, a higher calling, lifts us to a, a higher commitment. I thank you, Lord, for the ways in which you have bound the unity of this body together over the last several years and the way in which we see the fruits of godly wisdom borne out in the day-to-day um, comings and goings of the body of Christ here. But Lord, there's so much more room for us to grow in this. We pray that we would hold fast to that which we have been faithful to and cast aside all which dishonors you. Lord, draw hearts to you this morning that we would be one body proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere we go and representing the life of the future here in the present. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.